So, Bible's open in front of you. We're in Matthew 11 and we're in verse 16. We have this passage where the questions have come from the disciples of John the Baptist, from John indirectly. His uh, place in this context is going to be relevant today. And they, Jesus gives an answer and then he leads from his response to John personally, as we saw last time, he leads into talking about the uh, resistance to the message that he has experienced from Israel. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. And he has talked about how John could have been Elijah to them if they had been willing to accept it. Now we dealt with all of that last time, but I say all of that by context because as he continues this week, as he continues into verse 16, what we're going to see is him continuing in this direction of speaking to the unbelief of his time. And for those of you who've been patiently on this journey from at some point in mid-2023, um, no, mid-20, it was 2022, wasn't it, we started this? My goodness. Um, you, you have heard again and again and again me talking about the importance of chapter 12. And, and now we're really on the brink and lots of the language we've seen has been pointing to chapter 12 and now even more so in this section we're going to see the language pointing to chapter 12 because chapter 12 is where the rejection happens. It's where the rejection happens. And as we've seen, they have been rejecting it and it's as if the, the, the window of opportunity for Israel is about to close. So let's go through the text and see what we have here this time. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is the first reference in Matthew to this particular generation of Israel. Now, we'll do a little bit of flicking here, but if you look ahead briefly, um, when he says later in this passage, if these things had occurred in you, verse 21, when he says um, it will be more tolerable for them, verse 24, than for you, the you in context is this generation. That's the you. And the generation is important. And when we get to chapter 12, we're going to see this phrase repeated so many times. And uh, let's look at chapter 12 and verse... Um, where do we have it first? Here in verse, in verse, verses 33 and on. Now let's go back to verse 30. When we go back to verse 30, this is what's coming. I don't want to do a spoiler or anything, but we have the famous passage about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we're told that there is a sin that is unforgivable. We'll talk more about that when we get there. But suffice to say that what follows then is very significant. Verse 33 and 34, talking about good fruit and bad fruit on trees, referencing brood of vipers, takes us all, all the way back to Matthew chapter 3 and the words of John the Baptist in judgment against the Pharisees right at the beginning. And he's talking about this and says, 
Uh, I tell you, every careless word that people speak, they will give an account for it on the day of judgment. By your words, you'll be justified. By your words, you'll be condemned. So there is going to be this sin that's unforgivable. He's pointing back to the original judgment of the Pharisees. And then when we hit 38 and 39, he says, verse 39, he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign. Verse 41 repeats, this generation... Verse 42, the Queen of the South will rise up with this generation. And then there is the end in verse 45, when he gives the analogy of someone who's cleansed from an evil spirit, and then seven others return. He says, that's the way it will be with this evil generation. There's multiple repetitions of it at the end of chapter 12. And Little spoiler here for moving ahead to chapter 12. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is unforgivable. However, it is a sin that is committed by that generation of Israel. It's not something you can do. It's not something I can do. It's something that was done by them. Because they had the incarnate Messiah in their midst. Their Messiah, long promised, and they rejected him. But here in Matthew 11, we have that first reference to this generation. So you can see he's building up into uh, the, the final condemnation of chapter 12. And so he says, what shall I compare this generation? The issue is not with Israel throughout its history. It's the issue is not with the nations. It's this generation of Israel who have been privileged with the Messiah coming to them. And they are the ones who are being spoken to in this section. Now, how is he going to compare them? What are they like? Well, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. And they say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. It's a funny little analogy, but it's quite an important one. And I think it's one that's very relevant for us today. The, 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 the analogy that Jesus gives is that there's children in the marketplace. Now, why children? Well, children, because children don't have any authority in any area of life. Children aren't in charge in their homes. Children don't go out to work and have jobs. Children aren't in charge. If you're a kid, you're in charge of nothing. Your parents might say, look after your baby sibling, but then it's just delegated authority and, in fact, just a little bit of help. You, you yourself, you don't really have any, any authority to tell anybody else what to do. Childhood is for getting control of yourself, not anybody else. And so these children, in this analogy, they sit in the marketplace, there's lots of people around, and they call out to the others. Now, the text here says other children. You'll note in your Bibles, uh, if you're using the Legacy and the Pew Bible, that the word children is italicized. What that means is, is that it's not there in the original text. It was added to give clarity. In other words, literally it says in the Greek that they, that they uh, uh, were calling out to the others. Now, one way of understanding that is the other children. But another way of understanding it is, because they're specifically in the marketplace, that they're calling out to all the others in the marketplace. I personally prefer that interpretation. 
Because what that's doing is it's magnifying that here are a bunch of kids getting cross with other people for not doing what they, the kids, tell them to do. And that seems to me to be the emphasis of the passage. And the kids say this, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. In other words, when we said jump, you didn't jump. When we told you how to feel, and notice there is a rejoicing song and there is a mourning song. When we told you how to feel, you didn't feel the way that we told you to feel. You didn't do as you were told, and we're not happy because you didn't do what we expected, what we wanted, what we demanded. That is the attitude of this generation in the text, and it's the attitude of this generation today. You can misgender someone, deadname them. Dead naming, for those who look confused when I said it, is the terminology that is used when someone transitions to another gender and then they get themselves a new name, more fitting to the gender they wish to be, though of course they're not. And if you then use their old name, referring to their previous gender, which of course they still are, then they call that dead naming. And they get angry. And how can you be like so transphobic and this phobic and that phobic and it's all about control we played the flute and you didn't dance we we told you to mourn we told you to say this is a terrible thing why won't you agree with us and say this is a terrible thing and it all comes down to control and the, the world today more more than i've ever experienced in my lifetime is demanding not only what we do, but how we think. And that's why speech is so important to people. That's why you hear people who will say ridiculous, nonsensical statements like, your speech is literal violence. Well, that's, that's an entire misdefinition because it's not violence, it's speech. But what they're meaning is, your words are so damaging and we've got to be able to, therefore we need to control what you're saying. And and what they're saying, the reason that these words are so important is not because of the words per se, it's because they are demanding that you dance to their tune. They're demanding that you respond the way that they want you to respond. In other words, they want you to think the way that you are being told to think. And how dare you think otherwise? I do suspect that as the years tick by, that the difference between America and other Western nations is going to become more of a stark contrast. Not that there is not the same motivation and the same satanic influence in America, but by the grace of God, there is here a constitution that protects free speech. In other countries, that just doesn't exist. And they're getting rid of it more and more. Preachers on the streets being arrested. Women in in London being arrested for praying silently on a street within a few hundred yards of an abortion clinic. Arrested for standing in silent prayer alone. We are coming to a point where people are, are... wanting more and more control. And, you know, I don't 
it's not my intent to sort of push people to to opinions on various things that have happened in our society, but I think we can all recognise that in recent years there has been more and more of a push for us to be controlled. We have experienced, however we view it, we have experienced in recent years the government saying to us, you must wear this on your face. You must, you must n- not go to this place. The, the, the degree of control upon us is increasing. And they get angry when you don't live how they want to live. Now, we might agree pretty much with this on a societal level, but this works on an individual level as well. When I was a younger man, I had issues with anger. I got angry more easily than I should have done. And why did I get angry? Because I didn't have control. There were things that I wanted to happen, you know. If if my kids didn't do what I wanted them to do, young kids running around, they're not doing what I want, then I would be prone to get angry with them. Why? Because I didn't have control. Things weren't how I wanted them to be. And, and a de- desire for control and an issue with anger go hand in hand. And it's something we should all be aware of. Because ultimately... There is one who is in control, and when life doesn't go our way, we can be prone to being frustrated, or angry, or perhaps anxious. And all of these things are manifestations of us resisting the control of the one who is in control. And this is why in James, and we studied it a few years ago, there is this question of of murdering the righteous one. And you're like, well, I don't want to kill Jesus. But then the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that hate and murder go hand in hand. They're the same sin in varying degrees. And, and, And too many of us are blind to our hatred of God. Because we say, oh, I love God, I love Jesus. But then when something goes wrong, we're like, ah, we're really angry about it. Who do we think was sovereign over that? These are vital things for us to work out. So if you, like I used to, are prone to anger, I urge you to, to view your anger in light of the sovereignty of God. I urge you to repent of your anger and to to be someone, and this is a hard process for people who struggle with this, but you need to let us put aside, let go of your desire for control. One of the greatest parts of us maturing as Christians is letting go of our desire to always be in control. Men, we in particular are prone to this. We're movers and shakers and we want to make things happen and we want to provide and we want to be successful and all of these things. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But we have to recognize we do that under the sovereign hands of God. And when he says no and when he providentially removes things from being the way that we want, how we react to that says everything about us. Now, here in this text and in this context... In what way is this generation specifically frustrated? What are they frustrated about that they can no longer control? And the answer is, in the context, and 
there's plenty of things here that's going to make that clear if it wasn't already clear enough, is that it's the issue with the Pharisees expecting the Messiah to be a Pharisee. They expect the Messiah to come and to fit into their system. They expect the Messiah to come and be what they expected. And it's like, look, here we are pursuing righteousness as we see it. Why are you not dancing along with us? Here we are saying rejection of our ways is a terrible thing. And you're not bothered about that. In fact, you're the one doing the rejecting. That's their problem. And so the generation, remember, it's not the Pharisees who are being condemned here. He's made that very clear. It's the entire generation. Whose tune are you going to dance to, Israel? Who's play- there are two flutes being played, if you want to take the analogy a bit further. Jesus is playing his flute. Jesus and John the Baptist have said, you need to repent. You need to turn from this system because the kingdom is available to you. And the Pharisees are saying, no, 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 he, he's wrong. He can't be right. This can't be from God. This has to be demonic. They can't both be right. They can't both be right. And when it comes to pleasing people, friends, we can't, as we've spoken about several times in recent weeks, we can't sit on the fence. We can't compromise. We can't try to please the world and to please God. We have to, we have to recognize that if we please God, we're going to offend the world. They will be upset because there are two different tunes being played and you only get to dance to one. And if you think you're being successful in dancing to both tunes simultaneously, the bad news is, it's not God's tune you're dancing to at all. We had another well-known, well-respected teacher of the Bible for many decades come out a week or so ago and say that if he was invited to a tra- someone getting married to a trans person, he'd attend and bring a gift. You can never satisfy those people. Your gift is not what they desire. They want you to dance to their tune. The love that you show is not acquiescing to their sin. The love that you show is by saying that their sin is sinful. Many of us in this room will get invites to so-called weddings. Two men, two women, people confused over their genders. We can't compromise, friends. We cannot compromise. There is a tune that God is playing and there is a tune that the world is playing. And we have to stand up and be counted on the side of God. How can we expect him on that day to welcome us in if there was no distinguishing between us and them in this day other than we go to church on a Sunday? Or we put a Bible verse on our social media occasionally. These these things don't distinguish us. The distinguishing is in dancing to a completely different tune. And the generation of Israel are now starting to see the judgment from Christ coming 
which is you've been dancing to the wrong tune. And he says to them, and this is so important, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. Two crucial things here. Firstly, notice what they're about to say of Jesus, and they've already hinted previously that they've said, they're saying, starting to say of Jesus, that Jesus does his miracles, he casts out demons because he's demon-possessed himself. That they first made that accusation at John. We've seen this consistently. What's true of the herald is also true of the king. That John is, John goes and proclaims and they listen in silence. John proclaims and they respond. John is rejected and then John is is told he's demon-possessed, and then John is ultimately imprisoned and killed. Same thing to Jesus all the way through. Same procession. But the reason that John neither eats nor drinks in this context, obviously he eats food and obviously he drinks water, but the idea is that he neither feasts, we've already seen in a previous chapter that he and his disciples observed some of the fasting. Um, But... He didn't drink and he didn't eat certain foods because he was a Nazarite, like Samson before him. He was a Nazarite. And so John the Baptist was somebody who um, was withholding, he was abstaining, and they say of him, he's demonized. He's coming out with all this nonsense, look, he won't even have wine, he won't even do this, he's demonized. And then Jesus comes along and now he does eat and drink, He, he, he he doesn't have an issue, he doesn't, you know, observe, Jesus wasn't a teetotaler. He doesn't keep the Nazarite vow. And Jesus comes along, and then they say in response, he's a gluttonous man and a drunkard. This is the only part in the Bible that I would love to have the King James translation, because I love it here. Wine bibber. One of my favorite words in the English language. Wine bibber. He's a bibber of wine. He's a drunkard. He drinks too much. And so he has a little to drink, and he's a, he's a wine bibber. He's a drunkard. And then someone doesn't have anything to drink. Oh, and he's demonic. In other words, you can't please them. Because what then, what they'll say is it's about this. It's not about this. They'll tell us today, oh, it's your views on sexuality. It's your views on men and women. It's your views on whatever is the offensive issue that we conflict with them on. That's not the issue. The issue is they want to be in control. And to do that, they have to reject God. That's the issue. The rejection of a sovereign God. And today, more and more, as society goes further and further away from Judeo-Christian norms of behavior, people are going to be shaking the fist and raging because they want the right to do whatever they want the right to do. And that, friends, and let me just say this in passing, is why the expression, love is love, is so demonic. It is one of the most evil and wicked expressions that humanity has had to deal with. And yet, it's paraded as if it's the epitome of what is good. 
God is love. God defines the parameters of what is loving and what is not loving. The expression love is love in context means that whatever sexual urges you have are good and legitimate. That's what that means in context. We don't accept two men being in a relationship. We don't believe that when two men get married that it's legitimate marriage. You say, oh, I say, love is love. You just don't feel that way, but they feel that way. If, if, if the society around us cannot see that that is an open book, a one track, speed up, fast approach to pedophilia, I don't know what to say. Because the only thing that prevents love is love legitimizing pedophilia is the issue of consent. And in the last few years, kids can get abortions without consent, kids can get vaccinations without consent, and now kids can change their gender without consent. Kids can be mutilated without consent. Children can have puberty blockers that will damage them permanently without consent. At what point do we wake up and realise that the issue of, of older children not having consent has been accepted by society already? There is a wickedness that is spreading on our society because they are demanding the right to do whatever their perverted hearts and minds want to do. And you know the great tragedy is that many of us are the same. We just don't have the same degrees of perversion. Whenever we have a desire to sin because it pleases us, we are doing the same thing. What we're doing is we're saying, I am God and I set the standards. When we succumb to anger, when we succumb to drunkenness, when we succumb to pornography, when we succumb to compromise, what we're doing is we're, we're rejecting the sovereignty of God and we're saying, I get to live in the way that makes me happy, fulfills me immediately and gives me pleasure. That's what we're saying. And that's what this generation of Israel were doing. It didn't matter whether they ate or didn't ate. They were going to be condemned anyway. And so in their eyes, the glorious son of man, the son of man promised in Daniel 7 that would come on the clouds of him, they say, behold, a glutterous man, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And yet, and I love this last phrase, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. What we do is ultimately going to prove Who's cyber on? And remember, biblically, wisdom is not being clever. Wisdom is about there being a one way of living and another way of living. That's how it's understood throughout scripture. Psalm 1, book of Proverbs, James, that the concept of wisdom and heavenly wisdom is that it is a way of living. And so what this expression is saying at the end here of this verse is it's saying... We will find out what side you're on by which tune you danced. 
Don't be someone who lives according to their desires. Be someone who lives according to the word of God. And if you are a Christian, then God has empowered you by his Holy Spirit so that you are able, in his power, to say no to your sinful desires and to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling by which you've been called. Verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Now this is important. The word repent is something, the concept of repentance is something we've been dealing with right the way through these chapters. Because they were called on to repent and the whole question is, are they repenting? But what's fascinating to me is we haven't actually seen the literal word repent until way, way back in chapter 4. When the, he is in Capernaum. And in Capernaum, uh, I'm reading, you don't have to turn there, but I'm reading from, from uh, Matthew chapter 4. After the temptation of Jesus, Jesus begins his ministry. He comes and lives in Capernaum. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's the message that has been summarized in so many ways throughout the, inter- the intervening chapters. But here we have the word repent again. And what is interesting is we have it in the same passage as the words Capernaum again. Capernaum repent, chapter 4. Capernaum repent, chapter 11. What comes in that message of repentance? Well, the message of repentance in the beginning of Matthew began with John the Baptist saying repent and him coming to the Pharisees and calling them a brood of vipers and talking about trees and the fruit that they bear. And as we saw ahead already in chapter 12, we're going to have condemnation for trees that don't bear the right fruit and the phrase brood of vipers. In other words, we've got sort of a, a, a what we call a chiastic structure. Brood of vipers, bad trees. Brood of vipers, bad trees. Repent Capernaum, repent Capernaum. In other words, this entire section from chapter 3 through to chapter 12 is the offer of the kingdom of heaven to Israel. What are you going to do, Israel? What's this generation going to do with the offer? How do you receive the offer? You have to repent. Are you going to repent? What are you going to do? The judgment is coming in chapter 12, but we can see it arising here because already he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon are enemies of Israel in the Old Testament. They're mentioned in the uh, in prophecies against them in Isaiah and Ezekiel. And the the condemnation is this, is that those people clearly didn't repent. But neither did they have these miracles being done in front of them. They, before they were condemned, did not see blind eyes opened. They did not see the deaf hearing. They didn't see the lame walking and they didn't see lepers cleansed. They didn't see any of that. And what Jesus is saying is if they had have seen that, they'd have repented. In other words, the condemnation on you, Israel, is greater 
Because you are the chosen generation who were given the long-promised Messiah. He came and did these miracles in your midst and you rejected his kingdom. Because of that, there is going to be a greater judgment. Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Can we just recognize a clear principle here? It will be more tolerable in the day of judgment. The idea that everyone goes to hell and suffers the same. The idea that all sins are equally bad. These are not biblical ideas. They're not biblical. There are different degrees of judgment for different sins. Different degrees of judgment. 100% clear in the text. Can't be avoided. And while we tend to focus on certain sins, there is one sin in scripture that is considered the one that is the most egregious. The one most worthy of higher judgment. We'll see that as we continue through this text. Now, Capernaum is mentioned in verse 23. And Capernaum is mentioned in this context. Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. What we have now is essentially a repetition of the same principles. On the one hand, we have Chorazin and Bethsaida. And these cities that were in regions where Jesus had done ministry and miracles had rejected him on the whole. And they are compared to this long-standing enemy, Tyre and Sidon, who were condemned in the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel, as I say. Now we come to Capernaum. Now, there is repetition in these verses. Chorazin, Bethsaida, is replaced with Capernaum. But there is much that is repeated. The issue is the miracles happening in their midst. And the comparison is somebody far worse. And the, the result is, is that there will be greater judgment than, the, than for the one they're being compared to. So the principles here are the same. But what's happening here in every change is an escalation. Is an escalation. Firstly, the location. Chorazin and Bethsaida are clearly, from the context, cities in which Jesus did his miracles. We know where those places were. They're in the region north of the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus did ministry there. And yet one of them isn't even mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. One of them isn't even mentioned. We're not told of any miracles he did there. In other words, they're places in the region where he did miracles, but they weren't the primary focus. Capernaum, however as we learnt in chapter 4, was the base. It was Jesus' HQ. That's where his ministry HQ was. He went out from Capernaum, he returned to Capernaum. Capernaum got to see more than anywhere else. So he's escalating this 
in the sense that he's gone from cities that have seen many of his miracles to a place that has seen more than anywhere else. Escalation. The second thing with regards to escalation is this phrase, will you be exalted to heaven? Now, I want to close with this, so we're going to come back to it. But note that that phrase isn't in the first section. He says, in contrast to being exalted, you'll descend to Hades. Because if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. And again, the heaven versus Hades we'll talk about in a moment. But the comparison is with Sodom. Now, Sodom is famous. We have words today that come from the town Sodom which I obviously don't need to articulate. And if you don't know what I mean, then I definitely don't need to articulate. So, but suffice to say that Sodom and Gomorrah is the epitome of wickedness in the Old Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah come to us in Genesis chapter 19. There's a story there of attempted male rape. There is homosexuality that is run amok. And thus, quite rightly, though it's not the only sin of Sodom, what we see is we see the, 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 the judgment of their homosexuality with the fire and brimstone from heaven. What's, what's interesting is that while some would say, well, there's more to it in Sodom and Gomorrah than merely homosexuality purely, that alone, that, that doesn't actually support any argument they're trying to make. It actually does the opposite. Because what we tend to find is that when this lack of boundaries, when this I will do whatever my heart's desire progresses, then as we see in the book of Romans, God hands people over to this sin and that sinfulness becomes progressively worse, progressively more debauched and progressively more damaging and more um, and, and worse behaviour. And we're seeing that in our society today. Who could have predicted 20 years ago that parents would have their children taken away from them because the child who's a boy has decided he's a girl and the parent doesn't want him to chop off his male member? Who'd have predicted it 10 years ago? Who'd have predicted it five years ago? There, there, is, there, is, a, there is a devolution of corruption and of insanity that is proceeding. This is not unprecedented. We saw in both the Greek and the Roman empires that there was widespread sexual immorality that came in after the empire became prosperous. And that sexual immorality spread and it became institutionalized, cult prostitutes and the like. It became normalized. And then homosexuality started to creep in and become normalized as well. And by the end of those kingdoms, pedestry, the homosexual use of boys who are barely pubescent around the age of puberty, became normalized and became an accepted rite of passage in certain parts of Greek society. What happened to those cultures? They were destroyed. They ended in their corruption and in their weakness. We know that this kind of free-for-all love is love goes in that direction. We know that. Sodom and Gomorrah simply got to a point 
where people just said, I'll take what I want and do what I want. And of course, that found its natural home in a place that had already accepted homosexuality. And Sodom and Gomorrah is epitomized as being the worst throughout scripture. When we, um, and you might keep your finger in uh, Matthew, obviously, but you might want to turn to Isaiah now, but start in chapter 1. In the book of Isaiah chapter 1, and we need to understand that what's being said here is an illusion. In Isaiah 1, there is condemnation that is coming right from the off. It's condemnation that's coming against Israel. Hear, O heavens, verse 2, give ear, O earth, Yahweh speaks. Son I've reared up and raised, they've transgressed against me. An ox knows its owner, a donkey its man as master's manger, but Israel does not know and my people do not perceive. We reference this before in the context of hearing. Israel is not hearing, they don't listen, they're in rebellion. They're a sinful nation, verse 4, heavy with iniquity. They're evildoers. They act corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They've spurned him and become estranged from him. All of that in verse 4. And so the question in verse 5 is, where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? There is a guaranteed judgment for this rebellion. And... As we come to verse 7, we see more of that judgment. The land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. And it's desolate as overthrown by strangers. Enjoyment of the land for Israel was always connected under Mosaic law to their obedience. They can't enjoy the land. And so they are left like a shelter in a vineyard, verse 8, and a watchman's hut in a cucumber field. A little shack in a field where somebody has a little bit of cover while they keep watch over the cucumbers. That's their inheritance. That's what it looks like now. That's the state that they're in. But it could have been worse, verse 9. Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. In other words, in Isaiah chapter 1... Israel is compared with Sodom and Gomorrah in this way. Your rebellion and your idolatry and your spiritual adultery and your spiritual duplicity, your forsaking of God is so gross that you are worthy of the same kind of judgment as Sodom and Gomorrah. You're worthy of that. Why haven't they received that? Because Yahweh is long-suffering. And he's left a few survivors. This is the principle that we've spoken about several times recently. And we are speaking about in our Tuesday night studies of the remnant of Israel. And hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Well, who's being spoken to here? There is no Sodom. It has no rulers. What's happening is God is referring to the leaders of Israel as rulers of Sodom. Could there be any phrase that is used that could more accurately communicate, firstly, their absolute rebellion against God and his wrath upon them, and secondly, the the likelihood of impending judgment? It goes on. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. And so, in Isaiah chapter 1... 
we have Sodom and Gomorrah used to speak of Israel, to speak of how bad their sin is. Now, in Matthew, what's happening is we've now escalated from Tyre and Sidon to Sodom and Gomorrah. And I want us to understand two things here as we come to the end of this passage. Two things. We clearly in this passage have a realisation that judgments are different. Some sins are worse than other sins. Some behaviours will be judged more severely than other behaviours. Because Sodom and Gomorrah is being used as an epitome of the worst of behaviour, that Israel, you're so bad, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the, that's the worst thing that can be said about someone. Then we can understand that the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was a worse kind of sin. It justified fire from heaven. It was a worse kind of sin. One thing that we as Christians are going to be tempted to do to, to pacify to a very small degree our worldly friends and neighbours is to somehow say, well, yeah, okay, we say homosexuality is a sin, but it's just a sin like any other. No, it isn't. Absolutely no, it's not. Is heterosexual immorality sinful and wicked? Absolutely it is. Is homosexual immorality more wicked? Yes, it is. Because it goes against the grain of nature. And I don't want to go there now. There's a sermon on the website. We talk from Romans 1. But the way that Romans 1 teaches this with the threefold, he handed them over to this. He handed them over to this. He handed them over to this. The way that entire passage is structured is that everybody in society should know and be aware that this is wicked and worthy of judgment. And that has been the view of the vast, 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 vast majority of people in the vast, 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 vast majority of civilised societies. That homosexuality is obviously, overtly wicked. No matter which God you worship, no matter whether you worship no God at all, it's just recognised as being something that is gross, unpleasant, wicked, worthy of judgement. Has always been recognised. We, not us personally, our society, we are the exception. Everybody else got it wrong for generations. The Romans got it right eventually. What a shame their kingdom ended. The Greeks got it right eventually. What a shame their kingdom ended. But we're going to get it right completely and our kingdom will never end. Such despicable arrogance. The whole argument of Romans 1 only works because here is behaviour that God has handed people over to. Not that they are going to be judged for that behaviour, but the very fact that God has allowed anyone to desire that behaviour is in and of itself the judgement. That people would see that and say, man, God must hate that person because they've been handed over to that. That's the whole point. So we need to come away from the world's pressuring for us to agree in in little ways. Of course, we wouldn't capitulate in big ways. We're not going to do terrible things like say, oh, homosexuality is fine. We're not going to put LGBTQ banners up on our house and we're not going to march at pride marches. But maybe we'll go to a wedding so as not to offend people. Maybe we'll just say, well, it's a sin. I have to say it's a sin. The Bible says it's a sin. But, you know... 
If I was to commit adultery, that would be a sin too. There are sins that are greater than others, and the Bible from beginning to end, Old and New Testament, clearly points to homosexuality not only being a much greater sin, but one that should be overtly and easily recognized by all people, which tells you just how bad of a state our society is in today. But secondly, it's not the greatest sin. Because he says specifically in the text here that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment. Those people who were wanting to indulge in homosexual rape, that the fire and the brimstone that was poured on them, that those people are going to have it better than this generation of Israel. And the clues of why are in the text. Capernaum, you'll be exalted to heaven and you will descend to Hades. Sorry, will you be exalted to heaven? That's what seemingly what they're expecting. And it says, instead, you'll descend to Hades. For us to understand what he's saying here, we need to turn to Isaiah 14, which um, Jackie kindly read for us earlier. So turn to Isaiah 14, and it is here that we'll close. Isaiah 14, as you're turning there, is a famous passage. It's a passage that is often thought to refer to the origins of Satan. Now, personally, um, we could debate on whether it refers to Satan specifically or whether it refers to the Antichrist. Um, we, could ref- we could debate whether all of it refers to the Antichrist or whether parts of it refer to Satan. But certainly, if you're in the realm of Satan and the Antichrist, you're on the right path for this passage. It is a taunt, we're told in verse 4, that is taken up against the king of Babylon. There has been... Um, a con- condemnation against Babylon for the entirety of chapter 13 and now there is a there is a condemnation specifically against the king, the ruler. Babylon, in case you're interested, is pretty much modern day Iraq. Um, Saddam Hussein wanted um, Baghdad to become a sort of resurrected Babylon as it were. Of course that never happened. But we look at a place like Baghdad and we think of it as being pretty much third world today. You know, we don't think of it you know, as war-trodden and you know, there's, there's Muslim extremism and it, it's not much of a place. But for, for more history than America has existed, Babylon has been one of the most great nations and, and empires on the entire planet. Probably for, you know, and I, have, I should have written it down and got my notes, but probably approximately 10 times longer than America's even existed. In fact, no, probably more like 20 or 30 times longer. I mean, there were two distinct great eras of Babylon. And, And just so we're clear, the Bible teaches there will be a third. Babylon's not done yet. And there is when that judgment finally comes, there's going to be one last king of Babylon. He is the one that we call the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians. And he is going to be judged. And this passage is speaking of his judgment. Now, the reason a lot of people go from understanding this to mean um, a man, the Antichrist, who is possessed by Satan to Satan himself, is because you have, when we get to um, verse 11, your pride and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. And then how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, 
son of the dawn. You've been cut down to the earth, you who weakened the nations. That's the passage that makes people think of Satan. Now, I, when I taught through Isaiah 14, I argued that, that the Antichrist is specifically possessed by Satan and that the two are sort of interchangeable. But this is broadly speaking about the Antichrist, but there are elements of Satan. He's connected to Satan, hence, O star of the morning, son of the dawn, having fallen from heaven. But I want you to see this. There is in this one, and it's clear in the other passage in Ezekiel, but Matthew's not quoting that, so we won't go there. There's another passage that's similar. And it talks about this, I will be like God. And he says in verse 14 specifically, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. Satan, through the Antichrist, is trying to mimic God. I will be the ultimate God, the ultimate ruler, and I will have a kingdom over the entire earth as God has promised to his son. As God has promised the Messiah, as God has promised the Christ, that promise will be usurped by the Antichrist. That's the claim, that's the promise. That's the desire, rather, the intent. And yet, this one who wanted to ascend above the clouds, this one who wanted to be like God, this one who wanted to be sovereign and in charge, what's going to happen to him? Verse 11, he's brought down to Sheol, maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. You're just a man, and you're just going to rot, and you're just going to be eaten. And when he says about going to Sheol, Sheol verse 9, from beneath trembles excitedly over to you to meet you when you come. It wakens for you the spirits of the dead. That phrase in um, in the text is referring to the spirits of the Nephilim, or the, the, more accurately perhaps the demons that led to the Nephilim, the sons of God. We won't get distracted by that today for time. And the leaders of the earth, demonic leaders and and human leaders, they're excited to see you. All the kings and nations, they were hoping you'd be victorious, but now you're coming down to join them. That is the language and imagery that Matthew is referring to. The ascending to heaven, the being brought down to Sheol. Hades is just the Greek word for Sheol. So when you look at Matthew, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you're going to descend to Hades. He's comparing Capernaum to the king of Babylon, who is the epitome of all human evil in human history. Really? Jewish people who simply say we prefer this tune to that tune, they're on a parallel with the most wicked human in history? Yes. Why? Why is their sin greater than Sodom and Gomorrah's? This is important. I know I'm going slightly longer than I wanted today, but this is very important. The greatest sin of all is the rejection of the light that you are given. Do I believe that people who never hear the gospel, will suffer for eternity without hearing the gospel. Yes, I do. The Bible is clear. You can't be saved apart from hearing the gospel. That's why missionary work is so important. 
but it will be far, 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 far worse on the day of judgment for somebody who was raised in a Christian home and rejects the gospel. For somebody who goes to church and hears the gospel and rejects it. For somebody who has friends and families who are Christian and they reject the gospel. For somebody who thought they were perhaps a Christian and went to church for years, it'll be far worse for them. That isn't to say, Christians, that you don't have many, many children and raise them in the ways of the Lord. But what it is to say is that the more light that is given, the greater the responsibility in light of that. And there was no light given more brightly, shining more brilliantly, than the arrival of the Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people in human flesh, fulfilling and doing the things that Scripture said he would do. And living and and speaking as one who was sinless. And to reject him on the basis that he is a demon, he's demonic, he's possessed, is the greatest rejecting of good and calling it evil is the greatest rejecting of light and calling it darkness. And there will be a place in hell for that generation of Israel who rejected him that will be darker than the hell that Hitler and Stalin and Pol Pot and other such leaders will experience. What do we take away from this? What do we think of this? The degree to which we have light is the degree to which we should repent. If any of us are unsure of our salvation, I plead with you to become sure. I plead with you if you are still having one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. I plead with you to analyze and to, and to assess your life. Because if you think you're saved and you're not, and you're one of those people who on that day, when you say, Lord, Lord, here, get away from me, I never knew you, there will be a judgment that is to come that is so, so severe. And how can we be sure of our faith? Romans 8. We see the indwelling Holy Spirit that works within us gradually changing us, changing our desires, changing our behaviour, giving us more distaste for sin, giving us a desire for the things of God. And yes, we're not perfect. And yes, it's a challenge. And yes, our life is topsy-turvy and we go up and down. But generally speaking, we are coming to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We are coming to mourn over sin and we are seeking the things of God. This is how we can be sure that the Spirit of God is working within us because it's not something we would do for ourselves because none of us seek after God. But if we don't have that evidence of the Spirit working in our hearts and lives, changing our desires, changing our behaviour, then we shouldn't have any assurance at all. Certainly not because we come to church. Certainly not because we read our Bible. Certainly not because we were raised a certain way. And for those of us who have been given much, even if we are saved, and even if we can be sure, much is expected. Yes, Spider-Man was very biblical in this point. To whom is given much responsibility. With, with power, great power comes great responsibility. There you go. I quote my Bible and I quote my marble. 
This is a good thing. But when we are given gifts, when we're called by God, when we're put in a place where we're taught the word of God, when we see other Christians compromising and we're not in that place, this is, this is not something for us simply to rejoice over, that we must rejoice. It's something that gives us responsibility. And so as we go out, may we go out sober-minded. And may we go and walk in a manner that's worthy of the calling by which we've been called. Walking in fear of God and seeking to be holy as he is holy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. May these truths resonate within us and may, may Lord, any who are unsaved, who are hearing this, repent and come into your kingdom. And may those of us who are, Lord, May we be sober-minded with regards to the responsibilities that we have because of the great light that has been shown to us. Again and again, I'm reminded that in this day and in this time in this country, the majority of those who profess faith, the majority of those who, who say that the Bible is authoritative, the majority of them don't know their, their Bible from back to finish. They don't, they don't know anything. They, they're clueless. They, they go to seeker-friendly churches. They're feeling-driven and feeling-orientated. They confuse the the work of your Holy Spirit with the feelings of their heart. What a privilege we have to be given the light that we've been given, even as believers, even after being saved. God, may we take this responsibility seriously. May we walk as we should. May we leave the world behind. And may we walk for your glory. Amen. Thank you.